Amen. amen. And amen. Well, we're learning that, that, that to focus our lives on what Jesus has called us to do. There are many distractions out there, many voices, many things that tell us what we should be doing and this doctrine and that doctrine. And I really felt the Lord uh, some time ago, a year or so ago, just to begin to call me and get my attention to the simplicity of really what He's called us to do. There are many ramifications of it, many details, but in the course of pursuing those, we can lose sight of the very foundation of where it is we're going. And it simply comes down to this. Jesus called His disciples, and that's what we are called to be, to simply follow me. And we spend time looking at what follow me means, the the simplicity of it, but how? Because it's so simple, it's so easy to miss, because we get caught up in what does that mean instead of simply following Him. And if we follow Him, we'll get to where He wants us to get. If we begin to think for ourselves and plan for ourselves, we're very likely to miss where He wants us to get. And in the end, in the final resolve, when we stand before Him, what we're going to give account for is not what we did, but did we do what He called us to do, the way He called us to do that. And the only way we're going to do that is to answer His call, which is to follow me. And then we saw that he began to fill in some of the blanks and give his disciples some understanding of what that meant as they chose. See, very the way God works is he will call you, he will give you something to do. As you step out, he'll give you more understanding. If you sit there waiting for the full understanding, you'll still be sitting there when he comes back. It's only as we move forward and respond to what he tells us by the word and by the spirit that he begins to give us more understanding. So our key scripture here is in Mark 16, 24, where Jesus said, If anyone will follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. And those are so easy to read over quickly and say, Yeah, deny myself, take up my cross, and follow me, that we don't spend the time to meditate on it and think about what does that really mean. So that was what we've been spending this time on the last number of weeks, is what does it mean, the first part, which is to deny myself. We talked about the fact that our flesh rebels at the concept of denying myself because everything in our upbringing, everything in our flesh, everything in our mind is repelled by the idea of denying myself because everything I've ever been trained and taught is how to promote myself, how to defend myself, how to provide for myself. And so when something happens against me, my tendency is to fight back. They did it to me. Some of us want to get back at them immediately. Some of us are more subtle, but just as determined. I'll bide my time and find a way to get back. I may only do it in my mind, but I'm going to get back. But what we discovered is Jesus tells us we are to deny ourselves. So we spent some time at looking at what that does not mean. It does not mean you cease to exist. It doesn't mean that you, you die completely. It, what it, mean, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you have to give up everything. It doesn't mean, because there's a lot of things in, in aestheticism, in mystical uh, religions, which talks about self-denial. And there's a certain pleasure that comes in self-denial, but ultimately, there's a pride under this I have self I have denied myself so I'm still in control because I denied myself we saw that that's not what Jesus is talking about it's not some act you do it's not something I did on Sunday morning so I've done it But we saw it's a mindset, it's a way of looking at myself, it's a way of looking at Christ, it's a way of looking at others, it's a way of looking at the world, it's a way of looking at God. And so we began to look at that a little bit and to begin to break that down. And so really what we're doing together is together we're meditating on those words, deny myself. And so we're going to pick up with that this week. And we're going to look at, uh, what we saw is it's simply this. We went back and looked at what Christ did for us on the cross and what you received when you received Christ. What Christ did for you is He paid for your sin, your ungodliness. And your sin is not the things you've, things you've done wrong. Those are the fruit of our sin. The root of our sin is pride. The root of our sin is self. The root of our sin is selfishness. The very thing we're trying to hang on to when he says deny ourselves. And it is establishing my own way. I'm going to do things my way. And the, 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 the thing is, we, can, we, we do bring that into our walk with Christ when we become saved. It's still there. 
We're still struggling with Him to surrender our lives to Him and the control of our lives to Him. And that's sin. It's rebellion. Because basically what we're trying to do is establish our own kingdom where I'm king in my life and I'll let you be king in your life. That's what the world teaches us today. And now that we're Christians, we have God to help us. So when we get in trouble, God will help us in our kingdom to fix up the mess we made. That's what grace is all about. But I'm still king because I have the final say. That's rebellion. Because God is the creator of all things. God is the author of all things. Every breath we breathe, every beat of our heart is a gift from Him. It only comes because He chooses to give it to us and we have the arrogance to say, I'm the arbiter of my life. That's rebellion. That's what Christ came to redeem us from. That's what His surrender paid the price for. That's what His amazing grace has set us free from. And so Christ came to pay the price with His own life, His own blood, so that He could then give to us His righteousness so that we could stand before and be in relationship with a holy God. But what we began to see is He didn't do that by parceling out this gift of grace and righteousness to each one of us so we could go out the doors on Sunday morning and live our life separately in that grace. No, what He did is He joined us to Himself in union with Himself so that we are now one with Christ and Christ is now one with us. And I taught you last week that union does not take place with our physical body. It's a spirit to spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the place where He joins you to Himself. And this, the, the, the essence of denying myself is based on understanding that. That I am in Christ. That means whatever He is, I am. Whatever He can do, I can do because I'm one with Him. I'm in Him. And I used the example of the, over, over the, the flight we took over to England uh, last month where we were, in this air, we were in this airplane and I saw on the screen in front of me that the outside temperature at 40,000 feet was 76 degrees below zero. But we were comfortable. There was very little oxygen out there, but we could breathe freely. There was very little pressure out there, but we had just the right amount of pressure. Why? Not because we did it for ourselves, but because we were in the airplane that provided that heat and that pressure and that oxygen. And you and I are living in a hostile spiritual atmosphere. But because you're in Christ, the one that you're in becomes who you are, and that changes your identity and your nature. But it also changes other things. And that's what we're going to begin to look at today. I've mentioned these two. Oh, by the way, these notes are posted. If you pulled them down before this morning, you may want to pull them down again because I found some typos when I went through it this morning. So uh, if you get the current version, and I, I do this. I never used to use notes to teach from, but I'm doing it because I'm teaching some things in depth. And I want you to be able to look at them not only while we're teaching them, but also afterwards. So you don't have to feel like you've got to furiously take down notes. You can listen with all of your heart. So what I've shared with you is, is in order to understand what it means to deny myself, what it means to deny my right to live independently from Christ. Right. Now, if you're in Christ, you're not independent of Him, but we, can, we try to act as if we are, mainly because we're ignorant of what we're talking about. And so when you're in Christ, it changes how you see four different areas. And I talked to you about, when I, we were married 52 years ago this last July. It changed, and it took a while for this to happen, it's changed how I see other people. I can't go out on a date with somebody else. I hope you you, did you say yes? <laughs> I need more than that. Why? Because when I said I do to her 52 years ago, I said I don't to a whole lot of other things. Because I'm now one with her. This is why those of you that have been through a divorce, it's so painful because it's a ripping apart of something God's made one. And I'm not getting into whether it's okay or not, but the pain's full. it's painful because you're ripping apart something that's been made 
one in God's eyes and in reality. But when you're one with someone, it changes your relationship with everything. And I said, one of the problems that our people have today is that they've made it a commitment, a covenant commitment in marriage, but, and they want all the benefits of that, but they want to live with the responsibilities as if they're still single. And that's what we do as Christians. We've entered into a marriage covenant that's called the marriage of the Lamb. We're the bride of Christ. Paul talks about how I, 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 I betroth you to one bridegroom, Christ. But we're living our lives as if we can do what we want to do, as if we're separate from Him. And we have the benefits of what He's done for us. We have the benefits of being in Christ, but none of the responsibilities that come from we're no longer who we used to be. So we're going to look at four areas and begin to walk this out in your relationship with four different areas in our life. So the first one is our relationship with the world. So what we're talking about is because you're one with Christ, our relationship with each one of these four areas is only in Him. And Christ, to teach this, uses the example of a tree and branches. And He said, I'm the vine or I'm the trunk, you're the branches. And, And we looked at the fact that every branch in a tree gets its identity from the, branch, the trunk, the, the tree it belongs to. So we have a number of trees in our yard. Those branches don't have a separate identity. Their identity comes from the tree that they're one with. We saw that the branch can't produce anything on its own. It only produces the leaves or the fruit because it's one with the tree that it's part of. But we also saw that the, branch, the trunk can't produce anything of its own either. It has to have branches that it's one with it that it produces it through. And so we apply that. We can understand that when it comes to a tree. But Jesus used that as a model, example, of Christians, believers, and their relationship to Christ. So we're going to apply that to these four different areas and see how that how that plays out with our mind. So the first is our relationship with the world. What do I mean by that? Well, the most basic thing is the world, when the Bible talks about it, refers to this natural realm. And that's a realm that's detected with our senses. So any things that your senses can detect with your eyes, your ears, your nose, your, uh, I guess your taste, your mouth, whatever the other one I missed is, you know what I'm talking about. But it's not just that. It's the ways of the world. It's the philosophies of the world. It's the attitudes of the world. It's, it's the things of this world that we put our trust in, that we spend so much of our time focused on, especially when we're getting ready to come to church. We get so fr- I used to get so frustrated I couldn't get my tie tied right. That's not the reason I've taken it off. But I just, you know, and then you say, this is not worth losing my composure because I can't get the right length of the tie. Now, notice, ladies, I'm talking about men in ties. I'm not even thinking about your hair or your makeup or all the things that you go through. And please continue to do that to make yourselves beautiful. But when we spend so much of our time on that, how much time do we spend on our spiritual preparation for coming to the house of God? Why? Because those things demand so much of our attention and we spend so much of our energy focused on those things. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the world. It's the ways of the world, the things of the world. Especially the tangible things. Religious thinking tells us that this natural material realm is evil and must be avoided. To be holy, you must withdraw from it and have no contact with it. This is the basis of monasticism, of the system of monks that developed in the church. So if we're going to be holy, we've got to get away from everything that's unholy, which is the natural things of this world, and we'll, we'll come together to protect ourselves. Well, first of all, that's based on fear that, that, that I, I, can't, I don't trust myself, basically. And there were benefits that came out of that. Most of our learning and education came out of that. But this is an error, and it became the basis of a number of heresies. For this reason, God created this natural realm. Things aren't evil in and of themselves. It's what place they have in our lives 
It's the evil isn't the thing. The evil is what it does when it becomes a, the place it has in our lives and in our heart. God created this realm and He declared it was good. Six times in Genesis 1, after God created something, God declared that thing is good. And in verse 31, when he was finished of all of creation, it says, God looked over it, and God declared, it's very good. It's very good. Then God created the man and woman, and he created this place for them, full of things, full of fruit, full of food. And he placed it, it was called Eden, which means a place of delight. And God created it for them to enjoy. God created it for them to develop and pop and, and, and cultivate. But He made it a place full of joy. He made the food that tastes good. Think of that. God, now He made it so that you'd want to eat it. But He wanted you to enjoy what you were eating. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what you're eating. It's when that begins to control you. And so God created this as good and put man in it to bless him. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless us. Secondly, Jesus didn't withdraw from the world. In fact, he came into the world. God came into the world. God in the flesh touched things. Now one of the heresies of the first century that spread out was that because Jesus was God and holy, He could not have actually touched the physical things of this world. So they believed that it appeared He touched them. So He really wasn't walking on the dirt. He was this tiny little millimeter above it. He had the appearance of it. But a holy God couldn't touch the dirty dirt. And that's from the belief that dirt's bad. But God made it. So Jesus didn't withdraw from the world. He touched the world. He was touched by the things of the world. He touched people. A leper came up to him. A leper with a physical disease that was highly contagious. So much so they were put in colonies and if they were out of the colony and anybody got near them, they had to yell, unclean. Hasn't had human touch in however long since he was afflicted with this disease. And he comes up to Jesus and bows down before him. And he said, I know you can. I know you're able to. But I look at me, I don't know if you're willing to do something for me, or you're willing to heal me, but I know you can. And Jesus drew near. (laughs) And he reached out, and God, in human flesh, reached out and put his hand on that disease-ridden, contagious body. Imagine what that touch must have felt like to that leper that hasn't been touched in years by a human being. He touched a diseased body and he said, I'm willing. Be made whole. The church has been left here to influence the world by human contact with it. Not to stay shut up in a church building. Not to stay shut up among ourselves. But we're here, the purpose of coming here is to equip us, mature us, enable us to go out and touch the world with Christ, to be an influence in this evil, dark world. People lament, why are we here? This world is going to hell in a handbasket, and it is. But we've been put here for a reason, for such a time as this. But we'll never fulfill that reason if we keep hiding among ourselves and clustering ourselves together just for protection. We've been put here to influence the world. Not in our own strength, not in our own power. We'll be influenced, not not influenced. But it's being filled with the Spirit of God. It's being filled with the Word of God. It's allowing God to work in us and prepare us. But that can't happen if we don't come together and hear the word together, and influence one another. So this attitude that the world's evil and the things of this world is evil is unscriptural. It's really ungodly. 
God made man in perfect union with him. And when he did, he was the source of everything they needed or wanted. God made the things of this world to supply their needs and to give them pleasure. But God was the owner of everything. And God, in order to remind them He was the owner of everything, told them they could freely eat of every tree of the garden. But there was one in the middle they couldn't eat of. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there are other reasons why it was that particular tree, but I believe one of the reasons is God was reminding them, you have free reign here, but there's one thing you can't do. And every time you see that tree, it's a reminder to you that you own nothing. But you're stewards over everything. And God blessed them and gave them all these things to freely enjoy as long as they understood He was the source of it and they were just stewards. God tried to train Israel when they were in the wilderness by feeding them every morning, not with food they chose, but food He gave them. Every morning when they got up, the dew fell out of which they could make their bread. And then they began to complain. And God told them, you, you, but you can't get two days worth. You just have to one day's worth. And if you try to get two days worth, the second day is going to rot and go foul. Because God was training them. You can see this in Deuteronomy. He talks about this. God was training them that when they got into the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey in abundance, that they would know that God was their source. And they were not their own source. But they didn't learn the lesson. And God has us by tithing. God has us by other things that teach us, if we'll just listen, that we are only stewards of the possessions we have. You own nothing, not even your own life. But God is a much more generous owner than you are. God is much more generous and much more capable of taking care of you than you are if you'll just allow Him to do it by doing it His way. Now Satan comes to, remember the whole idea here is you've been joined to Christ, but Satan wants to keep you thinking, talking, and acting as if you're not one with him, you're independent with him, from him. And so in the area of possessions, in the area of things, in the area of this world, he works hard to keep you focused on the things of this world and handling them on your own. So one of the biggest drives is, i got to be able to provide for my family. What if I don't have enough money? Food, what if we don't have enough money? What if we don't have a place to live? And I've been there. I've been in those places where I couldn't provide for my family. I don't want to go into the details now. But it it was bad. And it wasn't God's fault, it was my fault. I stopped trusting Him. And I got afraid and tried to take it into my own hands and make my own way. And Because the tendency sometimes is, you know, well, if I can't have enough, then what I got to do is get two jobs. Then I got to get three jobs. And now I got so many jobs, I can't come to church. I can't have time to read my Bible. I'm worn down because I'm trying to provide myself for my family. And it looks on the surface like that's a legitimate cause because God wants you to provide for your family. God tells you to provide for your family, but He doesn't want you to do it trusting in yourself and what you can do. Because he can do a far better job for you. And God got us from being deeply in debt to a place where we're not in debt at all. And it's all God's doing because we did things his way. That was a hard one to learn. But Satan wants you to try to, out of fear, take hold of things and, and, and make it happen for yourself out of fear. When we do that, we separate ourselves. We, don't, we, we see ourselves as separate from God. But if you saw yourself really as one with Christ and in God, what can He do? For God so shall plant all my needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus. But God has a way to do that on His system, His way. So Satan's goal is for us to operate in this world as if we're separate from Christ. 2 Corinthians, or 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father 
is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, that's what we're talking about, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where, this is what it's all about, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're looking at, And whatever you keep thinking about, whatever you're pursuing, is where your heart is. And God, above all things, wants your heart. So Satan wants you to deal with the issues of life, the need to provide food and clothing. I could have gone on. Jesus goes on and said, you know, the Gentiles worry about what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat. Don't you know that God provides for the birds of the air? They don't worry every morning. I've never gotten out on my deck in the back when I'm praying in the morning and heard birds crying up there. I don't know what we're going to eat today. Because there's God provides plenty of them. And I help him a little bit. God provides plenty of them. He says, you don't see the, the, the lilies of the field and the things that are in the grass, the beautiful flowers. God provides all of those things and they wither and die very quickly. How much more will God take care of you that are his prized creation? Therefore seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Earlier, God, Jesus says, don't you understand that your Father knows what you need? Your Father relationship knows what you need before you ask. So Satan wants you to think you've got to work hard, do all these things, provide these things yourself, and the more you run into difficulties, the harder we try ourselves, because he's trying to get you to see your relationship with things, with possessions, your relationship with, with, with money, your relationship with a, 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 a making a living. See yourselves separate from Christ as you relate to those things. That's the first area. The second area is our relationship with other people. The Bible teaches us that if you're in Christ, your only relationship with other people is through Him. Because to relate to other people on my own is to separate myself from Christ. Just as to relate to the atmosphere around that plane, independent of the plane, I'd have to step out of the plane. And that'd be crazy to do that, wouldn't it? To step out of the train that we took to North England, that we were traveling about 60 miles an hour, and I say, you know, I'm just, I want to really touch the leaves out there on my own. So I open the door and just step off the train. And that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants us, and, and here's the issue. We've never been taught this. This is, we were raised that I have a, I, my own personal relationship with each other is my relationship with them. And when I first read this and began to understand this, my mind balked at it. I remember the first time I shared it with my wife, because impl- I began to apply this, first of all, in our marriage, in our relationship, was my first thought. Wait a minute, if I can only relate to her in Christ, then we're going to lose something here. And then it dawned, how can I lose something by relating to her in Christ. It's going to add to this relationship all that He is, His strength, His peace, His wisdom, His understanding, and His level of love. And it's given me the strength to be able to help her where I tried hard in other areas to help her, and I would run out of my... I'd be tired. I'd come home and I'm tired, and I was like, I can't give to you. I've had a hard day dealing with other people. Won't mention any names or look at anybody, but I've had a trouble dealing with... Now I've got to come home and be there for you. Where am I going to find that? But Christ never runs out of that. He never runs out of something to give. So I found as I would come home, I would turn inside, I would say, Lord, I don't have anything in myself to give to her right now, but in you, I have everything you have to give. And what it did is it took me out of it. If for some reason, on a very rare occasion, we may have had one of those minor disagreements that can occasionally occur in any marriage, where there was a frank sharing of views... And when those happen, almost always at the root of it, 
is I don't like something or I'm not getting my way or she doesn't like something or she's not getting her way or we both don't like something and neither of us are getting our way. And, 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 but when I begin to realize, wait a minute, I don't relate to her on my own. I only relate to her in Christ. Suddenly, His love for her is what came up in me. He doesn't get hurt or offended. He doesn't get insulted. He doesn't get disappointed. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get worn out. And in Him, I have that ability to love her and to love you. But we're not taught to think that way because we're taught to think of ourselves as individuals. And we have an enemy out there who works very hard to keep us thinking of ourselves as if we're separate from Christ. So we are in Christ. We can only relate to the other people, the world, the peop- other people. This includes our closest family as well as people we don't even know. If we're in Christ, then we can only relate to Him through Him or otherwise we separate ourselves from Him. We're taught by the world to love, listen carefully, we're taught by the world to love those who are worthy of being loved. We're either worthy of being loved because they're lovable, or they're worthy of being loved because they've done something loving to us. But our value system of evaluating people is based on what they're like or what they have done. So if people have disappointed you, you get disappointed in them. If people have hurt you, you want to protect yourself and not open yourself up to love them and to do something for them because they're not worthy of it because they've hurt me. This is one of the reasons people struggle so much with forgiveness because why should I forgive? They don't deserve forgiveness. And the truth is they did something to me. So why should I forgive them? It's not justice. I don't know about you, but I don't want justice with God. (laughs) Not for me. So we treat them, we treat others based on the value that they have to me or to others. If we say them as having no value, then we treat them accordingly. But Christ does not see people the same way we see people and the way we've been taught. He loves everyone. For God so loved the church that He gave His only... No. For God so loved the what? The world. In fact, when God loved them, there was no church. God so loved the... Well, who does that include? Everybody. It includes people you don't like. (laughs) It includes people who've been nasty to you. It includes a whole bunch of people that don't deserve His love, including everyone in this room. It includes the ungodly, the unlovable. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ loves everyone not based at all on anything about them. Christ doesn't love you because you're so loving. Christ doesn't love you because you're so lovable. Christ doesn't love you because you've been such a good Christian. Christ loved you before you were a Christian. Christ doesn't love you because you've been so faithful to come to church. It's good to be faithful to come to church, but that's not why He loves you. Christ doesn't love you today because you were a good person yesterday, because what if you're not today? He doesn't love anybody based on anything about them except one thing. God created them and gave them value. The only value we have intrinsically in ourselves is we are God's creation in His image. That's it. So Jesus doesn't see people the way we see them. He doesn't see that nasty person at work the way you see them. He doesn't have a heart for them the way we have for them. 
He sees them through His nature and His love for them. So we've got to make an adjustment if we're in Christ, we've got to begin to see people through His eyes, not our own eyes. And I've begun to do that. When I'm out in public and I'll see people that, 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 that in my mind I might judge because either they're, I don't know, something about them. Maybe they just don't look the way I think people ought to look. All right? I'm not going to go into any more detail because I don't want anybody thinking I'm thinking of you. But I was raised in a family that was very judgmental. I had parents that would make comments about people based on how they looked outwardly. And it's hard to get that stuff out of the back of your head. So I have to set myself. When I'm out in public, I'm looking at somebody and those thoughts may come back up and I said, no, no, I look at everybody in Christ, how He sees them. And it's beginning to change how we respond to people and see them. Romans 5, verse 6. I've been meditating on this regularly now. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the, look at that, ungodly. That's rebellious, prideful, arrogant, selfish, self-centered us. He died for the ungodly. For scarcely for the righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates, notice that's present tense, His own type of love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not die for us because we were worthy of His death. He died for us because we needed His death. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God's love is shown by giving His Son's life for His enemies. If you read further down, it reflects that we were His enemies. See, I, I, I used to struggle with that. How could I have been an enemy to God? I went to church my whole life. Because the rebellion in me is basically, when I'm rebellious in me, it's saying something about God. I am opposed to Him and His kingdom. Because I don't recognize the authority of who God is. It's called the fear of the Lord. Now, let's look at Romans 5, verse 43. We looked at this last week. Uh, no, Matthew 5, verse 43. Now this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon, what Jesus is doing here, He's doing a comparison between what the Old Testament covenant said, what the law said, and the teaching based on the And He's setting a higher standard. What He's actually revealing is what God requires of us. This is what God, this is the standard God holds us to. And as we go, we won't have time to go through, we're just going to go through this one. What you'll see is it's an extremely high standard because God uses as His standard Himself. Because God is at work in you to conform us into the image of Christ. This is what Anita read earlier to you. So this is part of that, but this part applies to what we just read. You've heard it said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of our instinct anyway. Love our, love, love our neighbor. Why? Because they're like us. They live next to us. They're like us. So they're easy to love. But my enemy, to love my enemy? Nah, to hate your enemy. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. That's just against our nature. The love our enemies? I say to you, bless those who curse you. Each of these gets more difficult. Do good. So it starts with the attitude of your heart. Go back. Stay there for a minute. Love your enemies. That's in your heart. Bless is what you say. Do good. Now it's actions. So that person who hates you, Jesus said, do something good for them. Some overt act that's good for them. 
gets even harder now. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Yeah, but if I pray for them, God might hear the prayer (laughs) and save them. (laughs) Why would I do that? It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Jonah. Remember Jonah when in the it wasn't a whale; it was a big fish. Maybe a whale, but it was a fish. Swaddled him because God told him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a vile, horrible place, the most evil place maybe on the face of the earth at the time, at least the biblical world that we know of. And the Jews hated them because they were persecuted by them. And God sends Jonah, a prophet, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and walk through the streets for 40, and say, in 40 days, get your bags packed because you're going somewhere you don't want to go. You're fried. It's over. And there was no grace in that word at all. And Jonah immediately gets on a ship going the opposite direction. And God had a way of turning his, his will around. And when he finished turning his will around, that fish vomited him out on the shore. This is so good. Headed towards Nineveh. And what you don't think about is he would have been in the belly of this fish for three nights. He would have been bleached out. And their ruling God that they worshipped was Dothan. And there was a prophecy somewhere that there would come a man all in white coming to speak on behalf of that God. So Jonah shows up in Nineveh, bleached out white. God knows what he's doing. And Jonah says his message, and then he goes outside the city and sits on a hill. And the city repents, the king repents, the king tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, he calls a day of fasting, and the people repent, and God relents what he was going to do. And now Jonah pouts. He goes out and sits on a hill. And God has to cause a tree to grow up and give him shade. And then the worm comes and kills the tree. And Jonah gets mad because the tree. And God says, you cared more about that tree than 600,000 souls in that city. See, Jonah's issue was this. Jonah was, the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and went towards Tarsus wasn't that he didn't like Nineveh. Because he says of himself, I knew that if I went and said these words and they repented, you're likely to forgive them. And they don't deserve to be forgiven. That was Jonah's attitude. But we need to look at ourselves and see whether maybe we have that attitude. What if next Sunday morning some people walk in here that don't look like us? Now, that's a little hard in terms of skin color because we have all different... But what if they come in here with long dreadlocks and body piercings and tattoos all over them and they smell? But they come in here because they're lost. What if you come in next Sunday and you're just a few minutes late and one of them is sitting in your seat? And their smell might get on your cushion. I mean, these are the kind of things we think. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? I have to ask myself these questions. What am I going to do? Maybe the reason we haven't seen more of God working here is we're not open to what God wants to do. Because it may put us in some uncomfortable positions with people we're not comfortable around. How are we going to handle that? Here's the answer. See yourself in Christ. See yourself in Him. How can you do this? How can you love your enemies? How can you bless those that curse you? How can you do good to those who hate you and pray for those that spitefully, that means they've intentionally used you. They picked you out at work. get at you and goad you. How are you going to handle that? Look at the next verse. But that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, act like who you are. You're in Christ. You're one with Christ. So see that person who's your enemy. See that person who hates you. See that person who 
persecute you and spitefully use you. See that person the way Jesus sees them, the way Jesus saw those that arrested him, the way Jesus saw those that beat him and put a crown of thorns on his head, the way Jesus saw those that ripped his robe, took his robe off and put on a robe of, royal, of purple and mocked him and spit on him. The, see Jesus, see them the way Jesus saw the Roman centurions who drove the nails in his hands, who mocked him. See the way, him the way he saw the religious leaders who mocked at him and called him names. The way Jesus did when he hung there and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You're one with him. You're in him. And the strength and ability to do this is not in ourselves. It's not because we're so good. It's, not, it's in Him. But if Satan wants you to deal with these situations and relate to people on our own as if we're separate from Him. That's the second one, other people. The third one. So, think of, so Satan's goal is for us to evaluate and treat people based on what we think of them. And that's to separate ourselves from Christ who sees them very differently. To realize that I'm in Christ changes how I see everyone. I was so blessed when Crystal shared that this morning because she had no idea what I was about to share. Slavery could exist. Now there were bad people that did it. But why, why did nations with consciences allow that? I read a biography before we went to England, of William Wilberforce. Some of you may know who he is. William Wilberforce was a very wealthy young, boy, young man, grew up spoiled, and then he met Christ. And when he met Christ, it changed everything. And he became aware, because England was the major slave trading nation. They may not have had the slaves, but it was their ships that went from Africa to the East Indies, to the West Indies. And so, what he put in his heart was to change, to, to get, make slave trading by the British illegal. But the problem he had was the average British citizen didn't see an issue with it. And the reason was because they didn't see Africans as human beings, they saw them as property. So Wilberforce put it in his heart to change how English people saw Africans, to see them as any other human being that God has created with value because God created them. But what changed his image? What changed his image is he met Christ. And in Christ, he began to see those those slaves going on these boats. He began to see them as human beings. And it broke his heart to see what was being done to them. So much that he couldn't be still and keep quiet. And then he came in contact with another man who'd been through it much more, in much more reality. And Crystal mentioned it. It was John Newton. John Newton for years was a captain of one of those slave trading ships. And it didn't bother him at all. I've read his biography until he met Christ as she shared. And his conscience broke because he began to see them as the way Christ saw them. And once he saw them the way Christ saw them, it changed his life and how he related to them. How could Hitler... How, Hitler was evil. But how could all the rest of the people participate in the, in the execution of six million Jews and not be bothered by it? Because they became convinced that they weren't people, that they were... They were, they were an evil obstacle to the prosperity, the return of prosperity to Germany. So how we see people determines how we relate to them and we've got to begin to see them in Christ and understand this, this is the main, Satan wants you to relate to people as if you're not in Christ and relate to them on the basis of what we think of them, not what Christ thinks of them. So that's our, our relationship with the world is only through Christ. Our relationship with other people is only through Christ. The third one is our relationship with God is only through Christ. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. A priest mediates, bridges a gap between two, two different sections or people that cannot have any contact with each other. And the priest in the Old Testament bridged that gap. Well, Christ is the high priest who ultimately bridges that gap. He is the mediator between us and God. You and I, I don't care how good you've been, how long you've been a Christian, you and I have, can have no standing on our own before God apart from Christ. The only standing we can have, one of the ver- things that's been going off in me, in Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the high place, just as He chosen in Him, that we should, listen to this, that we should be holy and without blame before a holy God. Now think of yourself. And now think of you standing before an absolutely holy God. Just the way you are now. You can't. But you've been clothed with Christ. In Christ you can stand before Him because in Him you are as holy as He is. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God because we are in Christ. Your righteousness doesn't come because He gave it to you. Your righteousness comes because He put you in Him who is righteous. So our relationship with God is based on how we see ourselves in Christ. Now one of the signs of it is your confidence in prayer. How confident are you that whenever you talk to God, He's listening to you, He hears you, and He'll answer your prayer? Because in most of our cases, the reason we don't pray more, or we may say prayers, but we're not really confident that it's going to hurt, is because we're looking at ourselves, standing ourselves before God, and somewhere down inside we know we don't measure up. Somewhere down inside, we know we fall short of what God expects, what we expect of ourselves. Somewhere down inside, we just know we don't measure up. On my best day, I might be confident, but what about when on my mind? But even on my best day, I don't measure up. I've shared this before. I remember one time on a Wednesday night years ago, and it's happened since then. I was walking right through here, right before the service start. I said, Lord, I just... I've not just been with you today. I've just, I, and I, I don't deserve to be in that pulpit tonight. And I heard so clearly, in my, when have you ever deserved? <laughs> that means there are days when I thought I did deserve. And this is very important because it affects our confidence before God. Either we have, we need to see ourselves in our relationship with God based on our own value, not on our own value or goodness, but based on Christ. Either we have confidence because we've been faithful or good or generous or done our duty, or we shrink back from Him because we know that compared to what God expects and who He is, we fall terribly short. But both of these are based on me. And that's Satan's ultimate weapon is to just get you focused on you. Good or bad, he doesn't care. As long as you're looking at you and don't see yourself in Christ. When I see myself in Christ, it takes me out of the picture and gives him all the glory. My standing in relationship with the Father is the same as Christ because I am in Him. John seventeen twenty. I don't pray for these alone, but also those who believe in me through their word. That's us. Verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect 
in one that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you loved me. So we've looked at to, to, that, that to be in Christ means I have to look at the world through Him. I have to look at other people through Him. My relationship with God is only through Him. And there's one other relationship that's important. And that's my relationship with myself. How I relate to myself. And this is so important. After coming to Christ, listen carefully, we still have all the same memories of how we were raised. How we acted, how we thought, things we've said, and how others have treated us. We have stored everything that's ever been done to us somewhere in our brain. For some of us, it takes longer to pull those up nowadays, but, but it's all there. We still have memories of all of our successes and all of our failures. And all of these memories of what was done to us, what we've done, what we've said, our successes, our failures, all of these memories form a picture in your mind, an image of who you are, of what you're like, of what you can do, and of what you cannot do. When we come to Christ, our spirit man is who we really are, is instantly changed into the image of Christ. We are instantly, that's what it means to be born again. Your old inner nature is taken out of you and God puts in you His nature. That's how you become His child. But that nature He puts into you is in your spirit. And you have three parts to you. You are a spirit being. That's the part God instantly changes when you come to Christ. But you have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotion, and they live in your body. And God does not change those other two parts. Those are our responsibility. When we come to Christ, our spirit is instantly changed and we're made a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's so important. That's, Christ doesn't change, clean you up. He doesn't patch the bad, take out the bad parts, leave the good, put new ones in. He doesn't re, revitalize you or refurbishes you. He kills you. The nature. Buries it. And breathes in you a brand new nature. That's the new creation. And it's in Him. All things have passed away Behold, all things have become new. You were instantly made a new person in that inner man. This new man has God's nature and is joined to Christ. That's who you really are. But we still have the old memories. We still have the old images in our mind. Our soul has not changed just because we've been joined to Christ. These old images and memories keep us enslaved Though even though we've been set free. Uh, I don't usually preach out of movies. But there's an old movie that I just... There, there, it's some humor in it. and It's, it's a clean movie. But it's, it's with James Garner. It supports your local sheriff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and there's a scene in there where he's, he's reluctantly become sheriff of this town that's terrorized by this family. And the youngest kid in this, they'll blow into town, they'll drink up and they'll shoot the place up and everybody's afraid, they've lost all the sheriffs. And so James Garner sees this young kid, the youngest one, and he, gets in, he shoots somebody, kills him. So Garner arrests them and takes them to jail. All right? He brings them to the jail and the problem is the jail isn't finished. So he takes this young boy and he puts him into jail. The building's there, but there are no bars. So now he's got to keep this rebellious gunslinger in jail, but there's no bars. So before he brings him in there, he takes some red paint and he splatters it on the floor in front of him. And then he brings him in and this young kid says, you, you expect me to stay there? And Garner basically convinces him that everybody that's tried to break out, that's their blood. <laughs> so now dad shows up and he comes in there and he sees his son, listen, in prison with no, the bars aren't there. And he can't believe how, why he's still in prison when there's no bars. Now listen carefully. There's no bars to hold him because he was convinced in his mind 
that he was not free to step across that line. And Satan has us convinced that we're still in the same place, the same person we were before we were joined to Christ. The memories are there, the thoughts are there, but that's not who you are anymore. That old man died. That old man's passed away. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But how do we get free? By renewing your mind to who you are in Christ. As long as I still see myself as separate from Christ, react to people separate from Christ, talk to God as if I'm separate from Christ, as long as I do that, I'm going to still see myself as the old person that I was. But when I see myself in Christ, this person has no past. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. This is what, this is what Christ did for you. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Next verse. 15. Should be there. 15 through 18. Well, I'll look it up and read it to you. But the Holy Spirit is also witness to us. After this, He said, This is the covenant that I will make for them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And He adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission, which is the removal of sins, there is no longer any offering for it. We have been sanctified through Christ. So in God's eyes, you have no past before you came to Christ. Because that old man died when you came. That's what baptism signifies. And the new, so you have no past when it comes to God. The problem is we have a past in our mind, cause we, so we have to renew our mind. So Ephesians 4, see if they have that. Ephesians 4.20. I guess not. Well, I'll find it. There it is. But you have not so learned Christ. Go ahead. Verse 21. If indeed you've heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, so that you put on the new man, look at this, that was created according to God. That word according means in, in line with, or in the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's pattern in a number of the letters he wrote to churches that he was dealing with issues, he would start out the first half of the letter by reminding them of who they already are in Christ. This is who you are. You're in Christ. And then he would basically say, now act like who you are. That's what Paul's writing here. Act like who? He's not telling them to become holy. He's not telling them to become righteous. He's saying, put on the holiness and righteousness that's who you are. Act like who you are in Christ. Now, how do we get to do that? How do we get to do that? We're not going to turn to the scripture, but Romans 12 tells us that. Verse 1 says, Therefore I, I encourage you by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and that you be renewed, you be not conformed to this world. This, don't, don't see yourself according to the world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now the word transformed, if you really study it out, means to take what you really are on the inside and begin to work that so that it shows up 
on the outside. The word transformed there, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, does not mean to change who you are. It means to take who you are and work that outside so other people can be affected by it. And that happens by the renewing of your mind. That means you start thinking the way Christ thinks. You start talking the way Christ talks. You start seeing people the way Christ sees people. You start talking to God the way Christ talks to God. You start relating to the world the way Christ relates to the world. And you start seeing yourself and relating to yourself the way Christ relates to you because you are in Him. We need to act like who we are in Him. But recognize this. Everything Satan does to you is to get you to see yourself, to see other people, to see God, to see your relationship with this world, and to see yourself as if you're separate. And so to deny myself means to deny myself the right to see people, God, myself, and the world as if I'm separate from Christ and to only relate to them through Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word and for Your Spirit. Father, Your Word teaches that when Your Word is spoken, there are seeds. There are seeds that are sown in the soil of our hearts. And Your seed, Your Word says, sometimes it's sown on hard ground and it never gets in. I pray that there is no hard ground here this morning. Some of the seeds sown on shallow ground and it starts to grow but the pressures of this world will begin to burn it out. I pray that there's not shallow ground here. And some is sown on ground that's deeper but there are other things that are sown in there, the thistles and thorns and they begin to choke the Word. And Father, help us to remove those thistles and thorns. Help us to remove the weeds that that take away from the Word that's sown into our heart. But Father, I believe in this room today there are hearts that are, that are good soil, broken up from the clods and that they can receive 30, the soil, so the seed, so that it will produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. Father, continue to open the eyes of our stand, understanding that we may truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.